Well, thank you for tuning in to LocalJobNetwork.com Radio. I'm your host, Jacqueline Peterson, and you are listening to Government Compliance, where we take federal contractors and subcontractors through the current trends of affirmative action planning, equal employment opportunity, and the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs. And today we have our regular expert guest, Sandy Ziegler, a recognized authority on federal EEO enforcement with 25 years of experience divided equally between the EEOC and the OFCCP. Sandy, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. We wanted to talk with you because you recently wrote an article for the OFCCP Digest, a newsletter about religious accommodations in the workplace, and specifically you focused on the Hobby Lobby case. Can you just start us off by summarizing the case for our listeners? Sure. Hobby Lobby actually is the case of, um, that comes under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and the question that the court was dealing with there was whether or not a corporate form could actually have religious freedom rights. And one of the, the ways that I'm looking at that case and why I thought it kind of married pretty well with the uh, obligations under the executive order is while we're not talking about whether the corporation itself has these rights, under Executive Order 11246, you're prohibited against discriminating on the basis of religion. And one of the ways that uh, it deals with that is it has both a non-discrimination component and then a religious accommodation component. And if you look at what Hobby Lobby was trying to do, in a way, once you get past the question of whether as a corporation it could have religious beliefs, then the question is now what do we do in light of those religious beliefs? Hobby Lobby as a company always provided health care, and they provided health care that covered contraception. But because of the regulations that were being promulgated under the Affordable Care Act, the HHS had decided that you had to provide all the forms of contraception that were approved by the FDA, which included four forms that Hobby Lobby had religious objection to. And those were the forms of uh, contraception where you, the, the act of terminating the pregnancy or not allowing the pregnancy to, to be successful related to a already fertilized egg. And in the mind of Hobby Lobby, those were abortifacients something that induced abortion or caused an abortion or had the effect of an abortion. And they had a religious objection to being at all involved in providing, uh, you know, paying for those methodologies that they felt were tantamount to paying for an abortion. And so they objected to those four drugs out of the 20 because the other, the other ones they provided, they didn't have a religious objection to. So what the court then had to figure out is, assuming, as they did, that Hobby Lobby could raise an issue about its religious convictions, what could they do? And the standard that they then applied was that one under the Freedom of Restoration Act, which in my mind kind of reminds me a lot of the disparate impact standard because it first looks to see whether or not the government has a compelling interest in making a change. To me, it's kind of analogous to you have a job relatedness and business necessity. And then is there any less discriminatory means or less restrictive means of furthering the legitimate governmental interest, which is kind of like um, disparate impact. You have to show that there's no less discriminatory means sure. to get the legitimate objectives of the business done. So that's the kind of standard that the court was applying in deciding what to do so that Hobby Lobby wouldn't be forced to choose between having the benefit of a corporate forum or violating its religious convictions or paying these massive fines that would have ensued had they persisted in not paying for those four types of contraception, uh, contrary to the regulations that the government was putting forward. So in order to resolve that conflict, they decided, well, yes, there are, in fact, less discriminatory ways for the government to achieve its compelling interest. And they assumed for the sake of argument that there was a compelling interest in having these contraceptive forms paid for and provided to women. And they had 
already set the mechanisms to handle that in religious organizations, so there were some workarounds, and the government could ultimately provide those things directly, so there were a number of options for the government that would not have involved Hobby Lobby in the provision of those four types of contraception. So that was basically the court trying to figure out how do I then accommodate Hobby Lobby's objection to these abortifacients, and that's what Hobby Lobby was all about, really. Does the company have religious beliefs? that have to be you know, acknowledged and dealt with? And does the government satisfy its burden to show that this is the least restrictive means to, to get its objectives accomplished? Now, the Religious um, Freedom Restoration Act of 1993 and Executive Order 11246 both come into play here. Can you just briefly describe the differences between the two so that federal contractors can you know, sort of see that? Sure. And in fact, that's one of the reasons I wanted to put the article out there, because there is a, a big difference between the accommodation of Hobby Lobby's interest in not violating its its objections to abortion and accommodation in the context that contractors are more likely to run into. Hobby Lobby wasn't really dealing under the executive order at all. But if you think about what the court had to do, the court was really in the same kind of position that the contractor will be in when faced with a request from an employee for religious accommodation. Now, religion under uh, the executive order, the non-discrimination part, they have a very broad definition of religion. And one of the key components that's similar between the uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act and executive order is that the agency and the government, in the case of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, are not asked to judge the content of your religious beliefs. So they don't decide this religion makes sense, that religion doesn't. So, you know, we get deference to one and not the other. Basically, they look at a couple of things. And one is, is this a religious belief? And there's a very rather broad definition of religion. It includes all the formal religions, but not just those. Other beliefs that are held with the level of conviction, usually, you know, that a person would have for religion. And you don't have to have a ton of people agreeing with you on any of this. It just has to be a sincerely held religious belief. And that can include a sincerely held ethical or moral belief and any kind of uh, sincerely held belief that goes to, you know, ultimate questions of life. So you have there, an executive order says, you know, contractor, we're not asking you to judge whether or not you agree with the tenet of this religion. We just want you to find out, A, is this a sincerely held belief of the employee? And can you accommodate the person, the religious belief, if that's necessary? And the, the standard difference is where you really have the biggest difference between what a contractor is doing and what the court was doing. The court had, like I said, more of a disparate impact type of standard, whereas the standard for religious accommodation for federal contractors is de minimis which basically means what it sounds like. You know, it's a very light standard. You don't have to lose business behind it and those kind of things. You may have to go to some effort, but not a huge effort. It's not like uh, reasonable accommodation under the disabilities law where you have to show undue hardship. Here, you just have to show de minimis burden on the business. And that doesn't mean you don't have to do anything at all, but it does mean that the standard in the uh, case of a contractor trying to accommodate an employee, that there's a much lighter standard than what the court was following in deciding how do I accommodate Hobby Lobby's uh, objection to abortifacients. The accommodation should not pose a de minimis undue hardship on the employer. Can you just give us like a tangible example of what that might look like? Well, it shouldn't uh, impose more than a de minimis standard. If it imposes just a de minimis, we're good. But if it's more than de minimis, it's not. And uh, actually, the EEOC's compliance manual has a couple of examples, which I thought would be interesting because the example they use has to deal with contraception, just like the Hobby Lobby situation, which kind of reinforces my parallel that the contractor is kind of in that position. In the example they give, 
they talk about a pharmacist who's hired by a company, and they have a lot of pharmacies, and they also have a lot of pharmacists on duty at all hours of operations. They then that Neil has an objection as Hobby Lobby did to servicing people who want contraceptions. In fact, the example that the EEOC has, Neil is opposed to all contraceptions, not just four types. So he tells his employer that he, on religious grounds, he can't be involved in distributing contraceptives at all or answering any customer inquiries about contraceptives. So he asked for an accommodation, which in his case, he says, can I not be involved in those transactions that deal with accommodations? And so the accommodation that the EEOC puts out as a reasonable accommodation to give Neil in this situation is to allow Neil to signal other co-workers who don't share his religious uh, objections to servicing people who are, you know, buying contraceptions to take over servicing any customers who call, phone, fax, or otherwise come to the pharmacy or contact the pharmacy regarding contraception. And that's their example of, you know, how I accommodate this pharmacist Neil. And it's de minimis because they've got plenty of people who could pick up this you know, this responsibility is not costing them any business, and it saves Neil from violating his conscience. And it, it, you can see that what Hobby Lobby was, I don't want to be involved in paying for this particular category of contraceptions. Here, I don't want to be involved in servicing people who are coming and asking for contraceptives at all. So you have a, that really similar situation. The employer has to make the decision of how, if at all, to accommodate Neil, and as well as the sincerity of beliefs and all that kind of thing. And the court had to decide, you know, is Hobby Lobby really genuine with these beliefs and what can we do to allow it to operate without violating its, its religious conscience? So it, there are some, I think there are some parallels to be drawn, but the, the example gives a much lighter standard for the, for the contractor. And one way to kind of see the difference between what you have to do and what you don't is to look at, you know, basically how did they resolve this problem in this example? One was they provided as part of the hypothetical that you had a lot of other pharmacists so that sure. it didn't impact the bottom line. It wasn't you know, imposing on people in a major way. So, you know, you could just shift those particular responsibilities over. Now, they did provide an example in the contraception arena as to what they wouldn't have to do to accommodate Neil's beliefs. In that example, they talk about him leaving people on hold indefinitely and just basically walking away from customers who come to ask for a contraceptive prescription and not and basically not telling anybody this person's there, which would adversely affect the business. I mean, if you're trying to be a pharmacy, you don't want to just leave customers hanging or you know, leave people on the phone with nobody ever coming back to check on them or at the counter with nobody coming up because eventually those people are going to stop shopping there or stop getting their pharmaceuticals from you. So in that case, because Neil would be costing the employer business and, you know, having a, a bad effect on actually being able to provide the services that the company's uh, there to provide, that's not an accommodation that would ha be, have to put up with. Basically, Neil could be subjected to the appropriate level of discipline for not doing what he needed to do as part of his job. So when we're talking about the minimus, he, the one before, it didn't cost the company money. It wasn't a big burden on anybody else. So they had to provide it. The second one, it was costing the company money. And so that they weren't obligated to provide a disruptive, expensive accommodation uh, to Neil. Sure. All right. Well, in your opinion, how does the Hobby Lobby case, which, as you stated earlier, was decided under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, relate specifically to Executive Order 11246, which also covers discrimination on the basis of religion and religious accommodation? Well, I think they, they relate in the ways I was just describing. You, you have a situation where you have someone who's looking at, in the case of Hobby Lobby, it's a corporate entity. In the case of a contractor, it might be one of its employees, who has a religious objection to some aspect of what it's normally expected to do. 
in the case of Hobby Lobby, there was a government mandate that created a religious dilemma for the company. In the examples that you know we were just talking about, you would have someone in the company where some duty, some responsibility of the job creates a uh, religious dilemma for the employee. There are certain things that, that just create uh, you know, a tension between being faithful to their religious beliefs and being able to do their job. And so to the extent that the company uh, is able to make adjustments, just like the court said, well, in Hobby Lobby's case, there's other things the government can do besides require Hobby Lobby to violate its conscience and pay for these things. There's other ways to get these items paid for and to the people that the government says ought to get them without getting Hobby Lobby involved. That in the, in the case of Neil, the first example where other employees could take over the contraceptive work, there was a way for Neil to do the lion's share of his job and not have to violate his conscience uh, with respect to his religious objections to the contraception. And this comes up for uh, employers uh, a number of ways. I mean, people may have work assignments that they have to do like McNeil had where he was normally expected to service people who ask for contraception. Or you may have people who have religious services that may impact their working hours, so they may need some kind of accommodation as to you know when they come in or when they leave. You may have people who need to be able to swap their shift because they need to go to or take a day for religious observances. Or maybe there are going to be places in the building that they need to use you know, because they have prayer obligations or whatever. So all of these kinds of things, even, you know, wearing religious jewelry or being able to put up some kind of religious uh, poster in your workspace if it doesn't look like it's a statement on behalf of the company itself, all of these kinds of things can come up as potential religious accommodations. And when they do, basically the employer is in the position that the court was in Hobby Lobby where they have to balance competing interests. You've got the important interest of religious, you know, religious expression, and you also have the important interest of ensuring equal opportunity and being compliant with equal opportunity obligations. And so that is, you know, the kind of parallel that I see between what the court was faced with in, in Hobby Lobby and what employers can be faced with when they have employees of diverse religions who run into, a, you know, either a job duty and assignment or a schedule that impacts their ability to worship or the ability to be consistent with their religious principles. And you, you did hit on a little bit of other sort of accommodations, and I want to dig a little bit into that. What about, you know, breaks for prayers throughout the day or different uh, dress codes? What are your thoughts about that? Well, it, it provided that it's not more than de minimis hardship, these are kinds of things that have been recognized as types of accommodations that employers may have to provide. Now, if, it, if, if, for example, you have a dress code and there's a safety issue and, you know, the person may be endangered some kind of way, maybe there's an accommodation that would make it less dangerous. For example, I think there was one uh, example where someone had to wear a beard for religious reasons and they normally didn't allow beards, but they accommodated them by letting him wear two masks that would cover it so that they would be extra sure that no hair would, you know, get into any of the product. You, you know, you may have someone who sometimes there's a, like a collective bargaining agreement and you can't violate the terms of it in order to give the ideal schedule to the person because of their religious beliefs. But it may be that even in that situation, if they can get a voluntary swap with a coworker, if, you know, if, they, if the company is able to accommodate that, then you know, that wouldn't violate the CBA, and yet it would allow the person to you know, meet their religious obligations. So these are the kinds of things that may come up. If you allow, for example, other kinds of secular clubs or non-work-related clubs to meet in part of your building, and someone wants to have a prayer group, you can't discriminate against the prayer group meeting if you allow other types of meetings that aren't work-related. So you have to basically not discriminate, not treat more favorably non-religious things if you do religious things, but you also don't have to burden the business by the kinds of things that a person might 
want to do or ideally want to do uh, as part of their religious observance. And also, I mean, you don't always have to give the person exactly what they want. There may be something that would take care of the conflict with the religious beliefs, but may not be like ideally what they would like to do, but it may work out. I mean, they, if a person observes the Sabbath on a uh, Saturday, for example, and so they, they want to be able to be off on Saturday and they want to come to work on Sunday, well, if, it's, if you can swap another one of their other days off, and it may not be Sunday, but you give them Thursday off, you know, they still get their Sabbath off, so even though they'd rather have Sunday off to Thursday, you know, you may have satisfied your obligation to accommodate because you've given them something that uh, uh, removes the conflict with their religious, uh, you know, their religious concerns. So, you know, do your best, it sounds like, to, to negotiate, to accommodate, like you said, that's not an undue hardship on the, right. the bottom line. Exactly. And, and like I said, the undue hardship doesn't have to be huge. It right. just has to be, you know, it has to be more than de minimis. Okay. Well, I do want to switch gears here and talk about the LGBT executive order and religious accommodations. Now, the administration said that they will be developing and implementing an executive order that prohibits federal contractors from discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation and sexual identity. What should contractors do to prepare for this executive order, in your opinion? I thought that was actually uh, the confluence of that proposed executive order and the prominence of this issue of religious you know, accommodation, as it were, that it kind of you know, brought to mind that this is a place where I can see potentially that there may be requests for accommodations that would be precipitated by the signing of this order. And looking at the EEOC compliance mail, they did actually have a footnote that dealt with a little bit with this in the, the EEOC compliance manual. It wasn't, they, of course, the Title VII, neither Title VII nor the executive order at present covers sexual orientation and sexual identity. But it was interesting uh, that they had this case. It was Bonanno versus AT&T Broadband. And in that case, there was a corporate diversity policy that the company had, and it, it, it obligated the person, you know, their employees to sign this diversity policy wherein you have to say that you valued homosexual coworkers. And the person had a religious objection to signing this because it basically asked him to adopt a value system in his perspective that was inconsistent with his religious beliefs. And so uh, the EEOC gives this as an example where there is a problem that it's, you know, he had a sincerely held religious belief. It was de minimis to not, you know, it wasn't going to cause that much disruption from not to sign something having to do with his values. And the reason why it was uh, an accommodation that probably would have to be provided was because the way they phrased what he what he was compelled to sign had to do with valuing, and uh, and that basically was an endorsement from you know in his perspective of a lifestyle that his religion did not permit him to endorse. Now they had another example where you wouldn't have had to provide an accommodation for someone who had a, an issue that dealt with you know LGBT or homosexuality, and in this case they so it was an example of a training conference where employees had to get basically training on all kinds of EEO issues, and the company had a non-discrimination policy against uh, LGBT people. And so the individual didn't want to go because she had religious objection to homosexuality, thought that, that going to such training promotes the acceptance of homosexuality, so she didn't want to go. And in that case, the example says that she, because there was nothing in the training telling her how to feel, basically, about homosexuality, just informing her of what the obligations were that the company had to treat people fairly and equally, and that what the rules of the company were, that that did not cause her to have to, in any way, basically adopt any different belief system than the one she already had, and they needed to make sure everybody understood what was necessary for compliance. 
And so it seemed like the touchstone between those two is whether or not you're compelling an employee to say, I'm okay with this, as opposed to informing an employee that this is what the rules are, this is the behavior that's expected of you. And, you know, that, they seem to, to be drawing the line there. One of the things also I thought was a, a potential, uh, and then this is not uh, EEOC's hypothetical, but an issue that could come up, and a reason I, I know that it could come up is because it has, in a different context, come up, which I'll talk about in a second. And that's if you have, you know, a lot of people have religious objections, and a lot of religious traditions have objections to same-sex marriages. I mean, if you think of some of the major mainstream religions, the ones with large volumes of uh, adherence, there are a number of religions that would oppose and not recognize a same-sex marriage. And if you had, say, an administrator who did not want to deal with doing the benefits for people, employees who are uh, in same-sex marriages, maybe this person works in a section of the company where that would normally be part of their, their job. The question occurs to me is like, okay, well, does the employer have, if the person asks for accommodation, do they have to reassign those cases to somebody who doesn't have similar religious objections like they did with Neil and asking other people who don't have an objection to contraception to service this particular group of people? Or, and uh, you may recall in the news not that long ago, there was a baker in Colorado who didn't want to bake a cake for a same-sex marriage. Right. And at least the authorities out there said that he had an obligation to do that, to, to, to bake the cake. Because it was discrimination. Right. So then the question is, you know, is this situation more like Neil and the contraceptions, or is that somehow different because uh, of the kind of rationale that supported the decision that, you know, we, we can't just let the baker not bake this cake for the same-sex marriage? And one of the things I, I, I put in there, as I, I came across this article from the National Catholic Reporter, they actually talked a lot about this issue. It's interesting, you know, you write these typos and then you, and you say, oh, okay, it, it, there, is this. there is a situation where this came up. And uh, this had to do with, the, the, there's not a ton of Catholic federal contractors that are basically Catholic-based organizations, but they were concerned that those that are out there would have a real moral dilemma if they had to provide health benefits to same-sex married couples because the Catholic Church doesn't recognize same-sex marriages. There was a situation, and I think this was in D.C., where the cardinal, the, the, lo- the local government had an ordinance that did not allow discrimination on the basis of LGBT status, and that included discrimination against people who are in same-sex marriages. And so faced with that dilemma, and like I said, this was had to do with city contracts, and apparently the diocese had city contracts or, or related Catholic institutions there had city contracts, that to resolve the, the controversy, the cardinal basically stopped giving any kind of marriage-based benefits because it couldn't, you know, it consistent with its religious beliefs, you know, acknowledge these same-sex marriages. And since it had to treat them the same, it basically took away the rights of the, 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 the not the rights, but the benefits previously accorded to heterosexual marriages. It took those away. So now the heterosexual marriages nor the same-sex marriages would be receiving any benefits that had anything to do with marital status. And, you know, in a way, they, they, they refused to face these dilemmas when it came to, like, equal pay for women. There, you're not allowed to resolve the potential discrimination in paying women less by bringing down the men's pay. That's, that's, sure. not, that's not a way to fix it. <laughs> not a, that would not be lawful. But in this case, you know, basically, it seemed like they, there wasn't any kind of uh, backstop or prohibition for the cardinal doing this. So they were able to basically back off benefits for this group in order to make everybody equally without these benefits, which is not what they wanted to do, but you know, because of the religious beliefs that the diocese had, it's the only way to resolve these kinds of issues. So what I was thinking is that I can see you know, how seriously these beliefs are held 
for whom this is a religious issue. And contractors will be asked, okay, it, you know, if I don't want to do something that, in my view, sanctions same-sex marriages because of religious beliefs, how will they treat with that? What will they be allowed to do or asked to do? And I, I'm hoping, this is what I put in the article, I hope that whenever <laughs> this order comes out, that it doesn't just come out and say, okay, you shall, you know, thou, thou shalt not discriminate and doesn't give any further guidance because I think people will need guidance because there are so many people in so many different faiths who might have take issue with some of the things that would then, uh, you know, be required of them. And so, you know, so a lot of companies already have non-discrimination on the basis of LGBT status, but for those that don't, or, for, or because this religious issue of a religious accommodation or, or uh, re- respecting people's religious convictions has been so prominent and is kind of close in time to when they, you know, they're talking about having another set of rights, that hopefully they will provide some guidance on how to reconcile the competing demands on the contractor to uh, allow for accommodation, because here, if you if you talk about the benefits administrator, if like with Neil, if there's a lot of other people who could handle those particular cases, there's not a large volume of same-sex married people, it may be the same situation where it's de minimis in terms of cost. But is there sure. a principle there that, like the, the situation in Colorado, will the, will the deciders, the people who put out this policy, say, no, that's different qualitatively than not want to do contraception? You know, that you, you can't segregate out a certain group of people that you won't provide services for. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how it goes, but I hope they do provide some guidance. Otherwise, contractors will just be, you know, do the best they can and hope that they're not the example case. Because you never want to be the case on which they establish the principle you want to do. Exactly. You want to know up front, what is it you want me to do when I come up against this? And calling them at the time, my experience is that if there isn't any settled policy, you can't get a whole lot of guidance because, you know, the, the people that you would call wouldn't have the authority to tell you one way or another. So I hope they'll think about these things. It seems pretty clear that this is going to come up. And the other thing is that the OFTCP, like I said, there's not a whole lot of discrimination cases that would come up. It's, you know, just, it just doesn't come up that often because most of the individual cases are sent over to the EEOC. But if the executive order, and they, I don't know yet who they would have enforced it, but it seems logical that they would have the OFCCP enforce such an order because it, you know, it kind of parallels the other enforcement obligations that they have, and it deals only with federal contractors. That if that happens, then there's going to, you know, there will then be probably much more activity. Even at the EEOC, they they had statistics, and they go back to 2007, but they were saying from 92 to 2007, they had uh, more than doubled the number of religious discrimination issues. A lot of that arising out of post 9/11 discrimination against people uh, of Islamic or Muslim faith. Mm-hmm. That when they have every time there's something new, it, it you know might create a spike in uh, requests just because, you know, here's something that people have to deal with and have to make an adjustment to something new. So I hope if they do give the authority of OFTCP that they will also have some guidance that comes along so that the compliance officers who haven't been dealing with a lot of this kind of thing would have some guidance on how to advise employers so that they can avoid running into any kind of conflict between their obligations under the new executive order and their obligations under Executive Order 11246 to accommodate people uh, when a religious accommodation is not more than de minimis. Well, there's clearly a lot to think about here, and much of it obviously is still developing. Sandy, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners out there, federal contractors, subcontractors? What should they do to help prepare? Well, I think the best thing you can do really is just to kind of refocus a little bit on what what are you doing now? If you already have this kind of a policy, have you had this issue come up? How have you dealt with it? And see, if, you know, think for those contractors who have had 
protections in this area on their own without you know, the government compelling them to have them will probably be pretty, I would imagine, be pretty much okay because their employees and are used to how the, the company deals with it, and they've probably been dealing with it for a long time. So if there was an issue, it would have arisen. But for those that haven't, you know, I think this would be something kind of new. Just stay, stay informed. Look over some of the guidance. A, a lot of it is from uh, EEOC. There is some guidance that OFCCP has, but it's not there's not quite as much detail as in the compliance manual for the EEOC. And uh, ask the questions. You know, when you go to compliance events and, they, you know, there's some discussion going on, maybe you can ask the questions, see if they have any idea who's going to be enforcing a new order and what would they, what would they advise when it comes to uh, accommodating conflicts between religion and the requirements of a potentially new executive order protecting uh, the LGBT community. Well, that does it for today's show. Thank you, Sandy. We appreciate your thoughts about this topic. Do continue listening to Government Compliance on localjobnetwork.com radio for your latest employment-related programs. And if you have comments, suggestions, or questions, please email us at ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com. I'm Jacqueline Peterson for LJN Radio, and thank you for listening.